and we're going to continue our series in John's Gospel. And if you were to ask me, Andrew, what is the most important sermon that you've ever preached or could ever preach? Then this would be a likely candidate. We've come to part 27, John 17, and I'm calling it that they may be one just as we are one. My goal this morning is to receive the task that Jesus gives us with joy, excitement, and determination to do it. So my plan for today is we're going to have a short introduction and then we're going to unbox the exquisite gem of this sixth sixth prayer Then we're going to have seven questions about the prayer. And then we're going to ask, how does it call us to respond? So, let's first of all just very briefly recap where we are in John. John falls into two parts, chapters 1 to 12, Book of Signs, which deal with Jesus' public ministry. And then 13 through 21, Book of Glory, which is the the rest of Jesus' ministry, including his death. So, if we look at the Book of Glory, it begins in chapter 13 with a meal with the disciples, the Last Supper. It ends with a meal on the beach with the disciples. And in the middle, we have some private teaching, just the disciples present for it. In fact, just the 11, Judas is gone, just for this Uh, For these chapters, extraordinary teaching. And then we have 18 to 20, his arrest, crucifixion, and resurrection. We are coming to the very end of the new teaching from Jesus to the disciples. Last week, we looked at the title, Safe and Sent, which was John 17, verses 17 through 19. For seven prayers, we looked at four and five last week. And um, just to summarize, Jesus prayed that they would be 100% committed to his message. And he said, just as you sent me into the world, so I send them. And for their sakes, I am 100% committed. So that then they will be 100% committed to this message. And uh, we, we, we asked ourselves, are we really 100% committed to Jesus' message that we are to be sent into this world? But we don't want this to feel like condemnation because Jesus says that he will be with us. And he's so gentle with his disciples at this time. He's not condemning. But this is the message. This is the challenge that we have in that, those uh, fourth and fifth prayers. So now we're going to start unboxing this gem of the sixth prayer. So first of all, let's look at the shape of the box as we take it out. Um, John 17 is the climax of this whole part of John. And the high point of Jesus' teaching, I believe, in the whole Bible. And there are seven prayers. And we are looking at the sixth. But actually the seventh is like a summary, so you could say the sixth is the high point. So if we put this in context, if this part of John is the high point, this chapter 
then chapter 17 is the pinnacle of Jesus' teaching. And this morning, we're standing on the very summit. I want to face, I I want to uh, stand on the summit together with you, even though it's going to be a bit scary up there. It's going to be a scary place to be. And as a disclaimer, before we start into it, I don't fully understand it. I've never met or read anyone who does. Um, But everything I've read sidesteps the most important questions, I believe, in the passage. We're not going to sidestep them this morning. We're going to face them, and I'm going to humbly give you what my answers, my best answers are. But I do believe that before Jesus returns, we will have full answers to these and we will understand completely what this is about. So as we lift this prayer out of the box, we notice it's an interesting shape. And I've, out of all of the prayers that we've had, this is the most poetic. It's perfect in beauty and balance. And, uh, but being poetic doesn't in any way detract from the truth. It's important to understand that. I talked the last couple of times about a particular form of poetry, which is a very natural form, a very natural form for a prayer. And here's an example. I wish I could support my friends who are in need. That's the initial statement. But I would need more income, which would mean a better job. So I'm praying for this, so that when God answers my prayer and gives me a better job, and I have more income, I can support those in need. Some people call this this structure, the technical name would be an inverse parallel or chiastic structure, but you don't have to worry about it. The important thing is the, the key idea is at the beginning and the end of the prayer. That's like the key the key thing. And usually right in the middle of something like this is the turning point that makes the difference. And seeing it, seeing how this works, is a huge understanding to seeing what's going on in the prayer. So, that was an intro. Let's get into the prayer. So, I've, I've, I'm going to expand this as I've done before, just to show you how it works. So, first of all, we're just going to look at the beginning and end of the two little gems here. I'm not praying for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word. That's verse 20. So that the world will believe that you sent me. So that makes sense. And then he says, the glory you gave to me, I have given to them, so the world will know that you sent me. So what we see there is that this is the goal of the prayer today. It's so the world will believe that they'll know that Jesus is sent by God. This is what the prayer is going to be about. So what we're going to do now is open it up a little bit at a time to see what's going on here. So, verse 21, that they may all be one, that they may also be in us. Hmm. So this has got to do with the world believing. Let's see what, let's open up verse 22. The glory you gave to me, I've given to them, that they may be one, that they may be perfectly one. 
four lines that are almost they're identical in meaning. He's just switched the words around slightly in each one. So clearly, the way that the world is going to know is through us being one. But there's something more we can open up. Let's look in right in the middle. Just as you, Father, are in me, and I am in you. Wow! That's amazing. Verse 21 says that they may be all be one, but what does that mean? It's just as you, Father, are in me, and I am in you, that they may also may be in us. Wow! That's quite a parallel. The Trinity? That kind of unity? Well, let's see, let's unpack this second one. That they may be one, just as we are one, I in them and you in me. Exactly the same thing. He's making a parallel between this perfect unity and love between Father, Son and Spirit and our unity as believers, our unity together. And there's one more at the end I'm going to open, which is like the final thing, the final goal of this prayer. So the world will know you sent me and that you have loved them just as you have loved me. So this unity is actually a sign of God's love. The love that he wants Christians to have is a sign of the Father's love. Wow. So you can see what I mean about the perfection of this gem. It's just so, it just, it just fits together so beautifully, yet the meaning is so powerful. And the meaning and the shape of it are perfectly in tune. <clears throat> there is a slight difference between them, though. The first time he goes through, he's not just repeating it the second time. There's a little bit of development. Because the first time is expressing what the goal is. Um, he, the goal, he says, I'm not praying, I'm for those only, but for all those who will believe, that's what he means in verse 20. He's not praying just for the 11 who are there in that room, but for all those who will believe in me through their word. In other words, for us, for all Christians through all time. So that's who this prayer is for. And the goal at the end, so the world will believe that you sent me. But in verse 22 onwards, he's developing how that's going to happen. And so I'm just going to uh, mark the, the difference between them. The goal... But then how this will be achieved, verse 22 says, The glory that you gave me, I have given them. This is part of how it's going to be achieved. Uh, That they may be one just as we are one. So the world will know that you sent me. And that you've loved them just as you loved me. So that's our look at the passage. And... Uh, I've, uh, if any of you think I've just imposed this on the text, if you're interested, I've done, I've done this translation from the Greek. Here's this, exactly the same thing in the Greek. If you want to, you can email me and I'll send you a copy of the Greek version of this. But this is exactly what is there in the text. I haven't in any way forced it into this shape. It's there. It's very, very clear that it's there. So this is the beauty of this particular passage. And uh, so, what our plan for today then is that we've unboxed this exquisite gem of a prayer. We're going to have seven questions now about this prayer. And then we're going to ask, how does it call us to respond? 
So, let's look at these questions. Actually, let me just go back. The first one, what does it mean to be one? Like, Jesus says that they may be one, as we are one. What does this mean? One. And that's perhaps the hardest question of them all. Second is, what does this actually look like in practice? Then, is this local or global? Is this like one in one particular congregation or one across the world? What is it? Has this prayer been answered? It's prayed 2,000 years ago. Has it been answered? What does it mean that we've been given Jesus' glory? If you remember, that was how he started the second half. Is it going to happen before Christ's return if it hasn't happened? And then lastly, do we have to do anything about this prayer? Well, before I dive in to the first of these questions, I thought it might be useful just to have a quick look back through John to see how Jesus has been setting the stage for this that he's about to say. And we've got a few places developing this teaching. And 10.30 he says, I and the Father are one. 13.35 he says, By this all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. That's the new commandment. 14.10 Do you not believe that I, do you not believe that I am in the Father and the Father is in me? 14.20 at that time you will know that I am in my Father, and you are in me, and I am in you. So this is, very, this is getting closer to what he's going to say. Then earlier on in this prayer, Holy Father, keep them safe in your name that you have given me, so that they may be one, even as we are one. So Jesus is gradually building up to this, and all of these are in the just partial statements, and it comes to its fullness in these verses that we're seeing now. So let's go to our first and the most difficult of our questions. What kind of oneness is being talked about here? So one answer is all believing exactly the same. Every Christian in the world, no, de different, no denominations or differences, like everything exactly uniform, complete uniformity in belief amongst Christians. And uh, I would say that on the one hand, the world does need to see a general agreement between Christians about what they believe. I think that's very important, and I think that um, uh, that is part of what Jesus' prayer is. And we'll see in a minute, also in Ephesians. Um, but lack of healthy diversity in ideas is very worrying. You know, if you have a political party where... There's no diversity allowed. Everybody has to believe and think exactly the same thing. It's scary. People don't think that's healthy at all. And generally speaking, people won't trust organizations um, where they think there's like a standard thing that you must believe. And uh, also, um, are people impressed by that? Like Jehovah's Witnesses all believe the same. The Watchtower magazine defines what you believe. Are people flocking to join the Jehovah's Witnesses because of their unity of belief? I don't think so. So I don't think, I think all believing exactly the same is not what it's about. A general agreement, yes. Not fighting over differences, yes. But it doesn't have to be completely uniform. So that's part of the answer. The second one, 
organizational unity. And a lot of people point to this. They say, you know, all denominations are wrong, organizational groups are wrong. You know, we need one true church all, all connected together organizationally. Um, now, I would say on one hand that infighting and divisiveness is very bad. Like, certainly the world gets a bad impression if Christians are throwing mud at each other, which does happen. And that is not good at all. I definitely want to speak out about that. But on the other hand, high organization does not make people believe it's from God. Just because something's very well organized, people don't say, wow, that must be divine. They don't say, I'm so impressed by the military. You know, they are so well organized. That must be supernatural. I've got to join the military because they're so well organized. No, it's not. It's not something that organizational unity isn't going to draw people to the church. It's not a bad thing. Certainly the opposite of it is very bad. But that's, don't think that's the primary thing it's talking about. I think what Jesus is talking about is self-sacrificial love for one another. And I would say everybody values self-giving love in the world. There's nobody who's, who talk, well, very few, who will not value the fact that people are giving of themselves sacrificially. In fact, Jesus inaugurated the kingdom, the new people of God, by demonstrating on the cross what this looked like. It was the key event that kicked off the church. And so this is the defining event. It wasn't the cross wasn't about organization or believing exactly the same thing. It was about an act of self-giving love. So I would conclude with this statement. The only explanation the world must have is supernatural. You, as God, have loved them just as you loved me. That's what their conclusion must be when they see whatever it is, that they, they are forced to believe that. <clears throat> so, what, kind, what does this look like? Well, um, I read recently a story of Corrie ten Boom, who was a, a woman in Holland during the Second World War, and because she was trying to help Jews escape, she was imprisoned, and eventually she was in a concentration camp, and she was abused. And after the war, she dedicated her life to showing love to the people that abused her to actually traveling and having compassion on the people, war criminals, people who are now like hated by society, and she was showing love to them. And people I couldn't understand. Corey, what are you doing? Like, <laughs> what, what, what on earth would possess you to do that? They could not understand where this love came from because it was something that was supernatural. So uh, here are the, the questions that I can't answer. The oneness of the Trinity is three persons in one being. Their goals are perfectly aligned. There are no boundaries between the Trinity. Each one of them is totally known and understood by the others. We draw a symbol with three, three interlocking circles to when we describe the Trinity. Is that what Jesus is talking about? I really don't know. It seems to be too much given uh, to give to us, maybe in heaven, but here, clearly this is about something on earth that's being talked about here. But So I don't know. I don't know. Maybe Jesus has something that he, he's asking for that um, 
that we don't know what's going to happen. And so um, I'm very curious about how this prayer ultimately gets answered. And I don't understand exactly how this comparison with the Trinity works. But I think it's actually quite amazing. I just want to draw your attention before we move on to a very similar passage in Ephesians 4. It's always very useful when we have two parts of scripture which seem to be covering the same topic because they actually can interpret one another. There is one author to the scriptures, it can't contradict itself. And so when they're both speaking, it's giving us like a stereo view, a 3D view of the truth. So let's look at Ephesians 14. Ephesians 4. Verse 12. Building up the body of Christ until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to full maturity, reaching the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, so that we may no longer be children, tossed to and fro, by the waves and carried about by every wind of teaching, by human cunning, by craftiness in deceitful schemes. Rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head into Christ. From whom the whole body, that's the community of God's people, joined and held together by every supporting ligament. So he's picturing the ligaments that hold your hand, your bones together as like being parts, different people in the church, when each part is working, properly makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. So there are two things going on here. Clearly there's an idea of a unity of belief, that we're not tossed and fro with ideas coming here and there. And the second is that... uh, there should be, this growth should be in love. And there should be a unity and a coming together and a being bound together like parts of a body which are held together in love. And so, this is why I, I think that the unity Jesus is speaking about, which I think is the same as this, does have an aspect of truth, of believing the same. But the primary thing is it's a body growing up together in love and joined together by every part doing its share. So this is, the, um, this is the example in Ephesians. One of the most striking um, stories that I've read is that of Amy Carmichael. Amy Carmichael went as an, from Ireland to India as a missionary and she, her goal was to preach the gospel. But what happened was she, um, she got diverted into providing refuge for abused children. And gradually um, they, the, the work grew until it was a small town. And her one goal in this town was to build a community of love. This was her one goal. And it is quite extraordinary to, to read what people said who visited it. People would come to the community intent on causing trouble... Some people even wanting to close it down, they were so struck by what they saw, they became Christians. In fact, it's been estimated more people got saved by actually seeing this community of love than would have had she been just simply preaching the gospel. So this is quite, well, I guess that's, she was preaching the gospel, of course, 
um, but like being like an itinerant evangelist. Um, so this was a, uh, a demonstration of, of, of what people saw when they saw love. And there were, there were towns around that were Muslim, and these Muslims would come and they would see, and they would become Christians because of the example. So, um, so let's, let's move on then to look at the next question. And this is the question of glory. Jesus will bring his, give his glory to us. What does that mean? Um, so I'm going to... Let's just uh, get myself in the right place here. Um, that was, what does it mean to be one? What's it look like in practice? Um, is it local or global? So I'm going to come back to what it looks like in practice in a minute. Is it local or global? Um, I'm going to say that both to some extent, but the emphasis is on the local here. The emphasis is in what's happening in this particular locality, uh, I believe. Um, so um, that's, that's uh, how I would, um, what I would emphasize here. Um, what I believe the emphasis is here. It's really the body of people locally. Because you can't like visit the global church and be impressed by the love in the same way as like seeing a community of, of people. Has this prayer been answered? Um, I would say that to some extent with the early church, this is partly why the early church grew so fast. It grew fast because they were just showing extraordinary love to one another. Just an amazing way this church was showing love to one another. And, um, you know, having all things in common. And this was one of the reasons that the church grew so fast. Um, but it's a long way to go, according to Paul. And I would say that um, the church is still blown around by every wind of doctrine in some way, in many ways, which was what Paul was, was speaking against and saying we've got to get to maturity which is past that point. Um, so uh, I said I'd answer the question, what does it mean that we have been given Jesus' glory? So let's, uh, let's, let's get those two questions to, for, for a moment. What does it mean we've been given Jesus' glory? <clears throat> Jesus uh, describes his death as his glory. Because it was the ultimate shining example, ultimate shining display of divine love. It lit up the universe. So the glory of God's love was shed at this point. When we become a Christian, we are given some of the life of God in us. We're born of God. So some of this divine life comes into us and this is the new creation life. So we actually have, we actually, you could say that we are born of God. We're carrying his DNA. And part of God's DNA is this love. And so when we're given Jesus' glory, we're given his DNA, we're given this love, which will, um, will, which will shine. And this is the new creation life. If you're a Christian, this fierce and shining divine love must exist inside you. So, 
Um, let's just look at an example of this, these words in Ephesians 3. That according to the riches of his glory, he may grant you to be strengthened with power through his spirit in your inner being, so that Christ may dwell in your heart through faith, that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may have the strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth. And wait for it. To know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, and here it is, that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. It doesn't say that you may be like God, or you may have some of God's, like, do some things that God does. It says God's fullness fills you. The divine is in you. This is what Jesus means when he says we are in them. So being filled with the fullness of God... um, According to the riches of his glory, in verse 16, this is his glory shining forth in, in us showing love. So, um, so that's uh, um, a, I think, a very relevant passage that speaks to that. So I just want to summarize that. Um, so let's just summarize those words. What is glory? How can we summarize glory? Glory, I would summarize then as new creation life. Perfect, self-giving love and unity as revealed by Jesus on the cross. So this is this life that Jesus has given us, which he's made, he's put it in us. And so that's how we can show, we can shine with all the fullness of God because it's actually in us. So, a couple more questions that we didn't cover before. Is it going to happen before Christ's return? Well, I'm going to say, Jesus prayed for it. Of course, his prayer will be answered. How could it not be? Jesus is praying this. So it will be answered uh, completely before his return, even though I don't believe it's been fully answered now partially in some ways, but I think we've got a long way to go. So I'm excited about what God is going to do amongst his people in terms of this kind of love, before he returns. And this is why, as I said at the beginning, I believe this is one of the most important messages I could be preaching. I think Jesus wants me to preach this message. Jesus is preaching this through me because it is so important to him. And then, the last question, do we have to do anything? And you can probably guess, the answer is yes. So, um, it's going back to our plan for today then. Unboxing the exquisite gem. Seven questions about the prayer. And then how it calls us to respond. Let's look then at how it calls us to respond. Um, One of the biggest obstacles to showing this kind of love is the lie we carry that love must be easy natural, requires no effort or cost or preparation. You know, loving is loving is for Valentine's Day cards. Like it's 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 easy, it's happy, it's it's just a it's a lovely thing. And we don't see that love is the hardest task. Love is the hardest task. There's a beautiful quote that I like um, by um, Rilke. Um, for one human being to love another. That is perhaps 
the most difficult of all our tasks. The ultimate, the last test and proof, the work for which all other work is but preparation. That is so different to the common view of love. This is the test on the day of judgment, dividing the sheep and the goats. Have you loved? This is the mark of a true believer. And the problem is that we don't see it as a task. We see it as, you know, just something nice to do. And we don't see that this must be our preeminent goal. I started off today by saying our goal was to receive the task that Jesus gives us with joy, excitement and determination to do it. And I'm going to suggest that this is how we can respond to this. First of all, recognize how important this is. This is the greatest task of your life. The greatest task of your life. Do you recognize that? There's no higher thing that Jesus calls you to do. Second thing, ask God to show you the who and the how. Who to show love to, how to show it. If it's such a hard task, you're going to need help. You're going to need him to show you what to do, where to do it, because there's so many like mis- misfiring acts of love that kind of look like they're going to work and they just, they just don't, they just turn to nothing. You need God to help you in this. And then tap into his love within you to empower you. You cannot do this without the supernatural. In fact, if you don't have the supernatural, it's not going to achieve the purpose of the world seeing the love of God. The world seeing that Jesus was sent by him. So you have to have the supernatural working through you or this won't accomplish its goal. Some of you may know that I have a particular concern for those with mental health issues. And more than anything else, when Jesus was on earth, he showed love to the broken in society, the beggars, the the lepers, the outcasts. And uh, there are so many in our society who are broken inside. And my vision is that the church should love them and fulfill this prayer of Jesus. This isn't the only way of fulfilling the prayer. There are many, many ways, but I believe this is one of the ways that that would get the attention of the world if they saw the broken being loved, because they can be the hardest ones to love. Um, There are many ways of fulfilling this prayer. So my challenge to you is to ask God to give you a vision and a passion. And most of all, to ask God to put his supernatural power in you, that when you love, people will look at it and they would say, that can only be God. That can only be God. This is the greatest task you can have. It's the highest calling Jesus has for you. Let's pray. Jesus, we are in awe as we stand on the pinnacle of your teaching. And we see, Lord, you calling us to do what you've done. You're calling us to follow in your footsteps of a love that pours itself out in self-sacrifice. And Lord, it's scary. 
it's it's strange because it's just not part of our own selfish nature. It must be your nature in us. Jesus, please, put your power in us that this will flow out of your being within us and we will just have joy with you. The Lord, we know that this turns into joy. Lord, we know that you said if a seed falls into the ground and dies, it will bring forth much fruit. And Lord, we pray as we die to ourselves, there'll be such joy and fruit welling up as we join you in love. Lord, we thank you. Bless us in this, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.